Okay, I'm testing for sound. I, so, Tim, I literally just set this up. And so, um, we'll see how it goes. All right. Talk really close to the mic because I'm still getting my sound right. Wow, these springs are still very stiff. I know. Do you want some help adjusting that? No, Is it good? I think I'm okay. Okay. I'm just trying to sit back. Otherwise, I'll slouch. <laughs> I know my weaknesses. Slouching? Yep. Why? Is that a weakness? It's like the collapse forward. Yeah. Unless I force myself. My, my wife is a Pilates instructor, so oh. I'm not allowed to slouch. Okay. Literally, like, I'll get jabbed in the ribs. Yeah. When I started recording YouTube videos, I got a couple of emails from people who would say things like, I'm a chiropractor. Your posture is awful. <laughs> you need to do something about that. In fact, when you're out here in South Africa, I'd like to have you come by my clinic and I'll do some adjustments on you. So you get free chiropractor sessions? I never actually, it didn't work out. I was actually, I was fine with it. I'm like, yeah, I'll go to your clinic. You can crack my back or whatever, but the timing didn't work out. Uh, so he picked me up from the airport. We had dinner, but we never got to the clinic. So so this is funny because I used to, um, I used to tour as a singer songwriter. Yeah. And I literally had a guy come up to me at a show and be like, Hey, the way you're bending over your guitar, it looks really painful. So yeah. why don't you come by my clinic? <laughs> yeah. So I had just gotten married and my wife and I went by there a few times and he would basically do a couple session. Like we would stand there and watch the other person getting cracked. Oh yeah. Right. It was really uncomfortable for me. Yeah. I've had a few of those adjustments. I don't, I don't like them. Yeah. It's socially uncomfortable to you sometimes, but I kept, yeah. I had a chiropractor I was going to for some time and I was really making progress and explaining the gospel to him and all that. So I kept going, paying 75 bucks a session as this evangelistic thing until I felt like I had, you know, shared enough that I could say, well, I've done my, my duty now. <laughs> it was an expensive time of sharing the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, you look pretty fit. What do you, what do you do for work, working out? I go for a walk every morning for 30 minutes. That's, Are you being serious? Yeah. That's your workout? That's all I do. Yeah. And just try not to eat too much. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't put them on, you don't have to take them off, right? Yeah. No. In fact, I saw like, I bought it, just bought a, ro- a rowing machine. And so Hugh Jackman, I bought it because Hugh Jackman said they're great. Okay. So that shows that I'm very influenced. Yeah. Um, but he said something about s- your, like, your whole workout thing is determined 70% by what you eat uh, and only 30% by what you do, whatever you do, yeah. whether it's walking or gym or whatever. I was so. hoping at the cafe here, they would have some butter cook or something good and, and Dutch. I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> they, there's just coffee and, and little chocolates, international chocolates. Oh, not Dutch chocolates. Not, well, international. They could be anything, but yeah, I was hoping to pick up some butter cook or Strop waffles or something good, droppies. I don't know. Or that double salted licorice. Yeah. Droppies. Yeah. Oh, is that what I'll, they're called? I love that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd eat that stuff all I'll, day. I'll work on that. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, anyway, for those listening. Oh, wait, uh, is somebody listening? Well, they may eventually. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who's going to be listening to this, um, uh, my name is Tavis Bollinger. I'm the creative director at Reformation Heritage Books. And I'm talking to Mr. Is it Mr. Reverend Doctor? What is it? Tim. Tim Chow. It's Tim. Yeah. There you go. Tim Challies. And Tim, so you're in town to do some audio voiceover recording for a book. 
That's correct. Okay. Yeah, I've written a new book and it's coming out in the fall. And today was the day or the last couple of days have been the days to read the audio book of it. Okay. What's that process like for you? I mean, you write prolifically on blog and uh, on books and other mediums, but what is the process like for you of actually sitting there and reading your book and not for the sake of proofreading? Yeah. Well, thankfully, I only noticed three very small corrections as I was reading it. That's the fear when you're reading the audiobook is that you'll see all sorts of things wrong with the manuscript because mm-hmm. you're reading off the final or near final manuscript. So there are three very small things probably no one will notice. One of them is minor as an apostrophe that was a straight rather than a curly yeah. apostrophe. So yeah. Sort of things that would bug me, but probably won't cause people at Amazon to dock at a star <laughs> or two. Um, but it was, I mean, it was an okay process. It was two days in a small room doing what we're doing here, yeah. talking into yeah. a mic. Uh, my throat got a little raspy by the end, but yeah. it was okay. Yeah, it was all right. Usually I don't do my own audio books. Um, I just let them, the publisher hire someone to do it. But my latest book is quite a personal book and it just mm. seemed like it would be weird to have it in anybody else's voice. And so I thought I'd, I'd read this one. Yeah. So I, I looked on your blog and um, you do these a la cartes. How long have you done the a la cartes for, by the way? That's a good question. Probably, I don't know, 12 or 15 years. It's yeah. been a while, so yeah. It's been like a real staple of your blog. Yeah, it was a staple in, I'd say, the blog version two or something. Okay. Um, as, I started, as I started redeveloping what I was doing, a la carte became a pretty important mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. On your a la carte, the very first thing you say is how you're in Grand Rapids today, mm-hmm. uh, which is today, the 14th, to record Seasons of Sorrow. Mm-hmm. So this is your your latest book. How many books have you written? And that's question one. And question two is, um, what makes this one significant for you compared to the the rest of the, the books? Yeah. I don't really know how many I've written. Maybe six or eight or something. Mm-hmm. And then I've had a series of booklets published. So whether that counts as a book or not, um, I don't know. But yeah, I've published a number of books in the past. Uh, this one is more significant because it's very, very deeply personal. It's reflecting on uh, the death of my son. He died in November of 2020. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, uh, really the year following his death, I just found my, my therapy, my way of, of processing it was to, to write. And so the book is a, a collection of reflections on grief and loss, sorrow, and then divine comfort that comes through it. Mm. So who are you hoping that this, obviously the, the, the process of writing was for yourself in a sense, and yet now you're releasing this to a, a larger audience. Mm-hmm. What, what is your hope for the book in terms of its impact? So I guess as the year went on, earlier on I was writing primarily for myself and a little bit informationally for others. Um, the very early days, just letting people, family members and friends know the details of what was going on and um, how to attend a funeral service and things like that. And then over time it became uh, more just me reflecting on on what had happened and how I was coping and, and what I was learning. And... Um, I think over time I started to realize, well, maybe, maybe there would be others who could benefit from this. And, and I thought that because I myself was benefiting from books that had been written 
from people who had experienced a similar loss. And uh, a lot of those are from the late 1800s. That was a, a period where I, I read a lot of books from that period. And back then the death of a child was far more common than it is mm-hmm. now. And so finding myself comforted by others, I thought then perhaps um, as I received comfort from the Lord, I could help others through their sorrows. And um, not necessarily only the the sorrow of the loss of a child, though that as well, but any any pain, any loss. None of us gets through life unscathed. None of us goes uh, all our lives without some sore loss. Mm. And so I'm hoping that it can provide some comfort to others as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so are you done now with the audio recording? Yep, finished okay. up a couple hours ago. Okay, okay. I'm glad to be done. It's not my favorite thing. It's it's hard to do. When you listen to an audio book, you, you don't understand how many stops and starts there have been. Mm-hmm. And from a reader's level, how much goes into it. And then from a production level, how much splicing he has to do, how much fixing he has to do to make it sound smooth when yeah. actually there's been a lot of stopping and starting and a yeah. lot of just, you know, you, you read for a while and then you just can't make sense anymore. You're tired. Your, your, your words aren't flowing anymore. <laughs> was, was the process though of reading that book, considering its contents also challenging in certain regards? Yeah. Yeah. I had a few times I just had to stop and cry for a little bit and yeah. just, catch my breath, get my bearings, step away for a few minutes. It wasn't as bad as it might have been, probably because I've read it and read it aloud so many times mm. in the in the writing and editing process. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was pretty difficult, pretty emotionally draining to read it. Is there a sense though where that in itself is therapeutic? Yeah, I think so. I I think for me, writing the book and releasing the book is, in a sense, a kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe sounds a little bit strange, but uh, there is something therapeutic about working through the the ideas, working through what has happened. And for me, writing has always been the way I think. I, I can't think well unless I'm writing. Mm. And so I don't think I would really know what I believe about Nick's death, what I believe about God's providence, what I believe about suffering and sorrow, unless I was writing it down. Mm. And as I write it down, I, I can develop the ideas, I can um, improve the ideas, and then I can also sort of set those ideas away where I can refer to them in the past. When I need to remember what I believe, I can go and look at what I've written. Um, I, I was comforted by this once. I was on a on a panel at a conference with a quite renowned New Testament scholar, and somebody we got a little list of questions we were going to be asked in the Q&A. And uh, he said, yeah, I need to look at one of my sermons to remember what I believe about that. <laughs> so he pulled out his iPad, flipped through his sermons, referenced what he had written in a sermon in the past, and now he knew what he believed. And so I think there's something to be said for writing down what we believe where we can turn to it again in times where we, we need to draw upon that truth. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to hear more about your writing process and specifically your relationship with God in the context of writing. Mm-hmm. So how, how is it that the Lord himself is, uh, is a part of that, that thinking, writing, creative process of yours? Well, as Christians and Protestant Christians, we believe in the value of meditation. And uh, those of us who read deeply in the Puritans or other devotional writers, we know that 
meditation is how you take those truths and work them out and sink them deep into the mind and deep into the heart. And writing is really my form of meditation. So Mm -hmm. I'm not that good at just sitting quietly and pondering things. I can do it. But what I prefer to do is to find ideas, put them in writing software, and then come back to them at some point where I can now spend a couple of hours just focusing on that idea. And so as I go through life, as I read books, as I hear sermons, I'm always grabbing ideas and just putting them into a system. And then uh, Monday morning, I'll draw a few of those ideas out and say, right, I'm going to try and write about this this Mm -hmm. week. I'm going to try and tease out that idea. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, my writing is very devotional. It's very spiritual. I I pray, hopefully, I pray before I write. I try to to remember to do that and um, ask God's blessing upon me. Just, just write and, and trust yeah. that somehow he's helping me in that. Yeah. Are there other ways that you use writing to engage with the Lord? I, I asked this question thinking of my own practice of uh, writing prayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's been hard for me uh, personally. I wouldn't say this was any other person's experience, but to just sit and pray for long periods of time. I know that when I was going through seminary, the the Puritans were made more aware to me, and uh, there would always be these examples of men who would pray for hours and hours, and I just, I tried. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I don't know if I can do this. But when I started sitting and and writing out my thoughts and pleas and requests and adorations and everything out to the Lord, it became quite a different experience altogether. Is, is that something you do too? I mean, is it more than just blogging and books? Do you write poems? Do you write prayers, songs? Yeah, I, I don't write poems. I don't write songs. Um, I'm not musical enough to write songs. I'd like to explore poetry at some time. It's, it's just sort of been on the back burner. But at some point, I'd like to do do more exploration of poetry my problem is I like reading some of the classic poets, um, Longfellow and Dunn and others. And uh, today there's so much free verse and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I just don't think I could do that. I think I would have to, f- the only way I could be content is if I pushed myself to write according to some classic poetic forms. So mm-hmm. that's been part of what's been uh, keeping me from doing it, I think. Um I do write prayers occasionally. So at church, I'm often praying the pastoral prayer. And I always take quite a bit of time to prepare that well and usually write out, if not a a complete script, at least to write out a framework Mm -hmm. of what I'll pray Mm -hmm. and sort of vary that, whether I'm just praying off an outline or whether almost word for word. And occasionally do write other prayers. In in, in Seasons of Sorrow, my book, there's at least one prayer that's completely written out in Mm -hmm. there, quite a lengthy one. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not one of my core devotional habits. I, I pray... Every morning, um, while I'm usually while I'm out on a walk, I take my prayer app along and it directs me as I pray. And so the way I keep my mind attuned in prayer is to have an outline that I'm praying through mm-hmm. a number of uh, things related to myself, a number of things related to my family, a number of things related to my church, and I'm just praying through those yeah. in an organized way. Yeah. What would you think? This is a curveball I'm throwing at you. What would you think? Puritans or a specific Puritan might think about um, 
the integration we have today of tech and faith. Because I know that just from what I've seen of your blog, you are quite tech savvy. There's no criticism at all in that, but. Does he, can, as he speaks into a brand new microphone <laughs> with a MacBook in front of him. It's one of the new ones too. It's the, it's the Max. It's pretty awesome. But um, yeah, you mentioned a prayer app. Yeah. We've got the Bible on our phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really don't need physical books anymore. Yeah. What, what do you think the Puritans would think about that? Well, I would imagine initially it would just blow their minds to see what we have available to us. And, and well, it should. We can grow pretty cold to just the, the incredible wonder of the, uh, the technologies available to us. But one of the new technologies, still relatively new technologies, when the Puritans, especially at the beginning, were at their, in their heyday was the book, the, the printing press printing books. And man, did they ever take advantage of that technology? They were writing books, they were writing prayers, they were printing them. So I don't think they were any less attuned to new technologies. And I think they saw the promise in them and the the benefit of embracing them and using them. Mm. And so I would imagine they would be okay with it. Um, you know, there's there's considerations we have to make. We have to think deeply about what it means to no longer have printed Bibles. Um, how it will change our relationship to the Bible to no longer have it in printed format, but to have it in electronic formats. These these things are significant. Um, to have books that are not printed, but are electronic and actually owned by Amazon, and they can change it at any time they want, or mm-hmm. just withdraw it from our libraries, as they famously did with 1984, famously and ironically did. Um, so yeah, there's lots of considerations and I think things we need to think deeply about. Yeah, I've always wondered what a, a Puritan Twitter thread would look like. Because so I think yeah. the title alone of the thread would be a few posts. <laughs> right. Before they got into the actual argument. Yeah, undoubtedly. But there were some, um, there are there lots of Puritans, lots of reformers, lots of subsequent theologians who were, they created content that was so and that somebody like Matthew Henry was an absolute master in taking a lot of words and then distilling it down mm-hmm. to a single sentence. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's what Twitter allows you to do. Now, I'm, I don't use Twitter. I'm not interested in it. Um, I shy away from it. But I think that's the benefit of it is distilling things down to their essence. Mm-hmm. And so um, anyone who's quotable could put the best of that out on social media and probably see it go far and wide. Yeah, yeah. What is your relationship to the Puritans? Have they been much of an influence in your own writing and thinking? Years ago, through the blog, I, I realized I was I hadn't read as deeply as I wanted to in some of the the historical Protestant authors. And so I started a program called Reading Classics Together, where I would just invite people to, hey, I'm going to read this book. Why don't you read me with it? And once a week, I'll just post a reflection on the previous week's reading. Mm. And through that program, I read quite a lot of the the core Puritan books, you know, the best known, the yeah. the best of the best. And the Puritans, like just about anyone else, they, they wrote just incredible volumes of material, most of which was probably pretty average. But a lot of time has passed and time has served as a filter that mm. has now distilled it down to the best. And so... 
people who are interested in the Puritans can just look at the some of those series that are meant to introduce you, and you'll have the absolute best of the best. It's, yeah. it's not dissimilar to songwriters. Charles Wesley wrote 10,000 hymns. We sing about 10 of them today, which means he wrote 9,990 that were probably not very good. And time <laughs> served as a filter. People tried singing them. They realized, eh, this isn't very good. And we're left with the absolute cream of the crop. And, mm-hmm. and that's the case of the Puritans as well. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you are, I overheard you're heading out to the Sing Conference mm-hmm. soon. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Have you've been to this before? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's, what's it like in terms of the size and the songs and. Yeah. So the Sing Conference is put on by Getty Music. Yeah. It's, uh, Keith Getty and Kristen Getty and their, their ministry. And it's an interesting event. I think it's different from most others in that Getty is the key. The He's the key that holds it together. And he draws very widely. There's a lot of people who love the Getty music. So it's the one, probably the one conference you can go to where you're as likely to bump into a Dutch reform guy as a Pentecostal. And they'll be there worshiping together, same mm-hmm. music, same mm-hmm. songs, enjoying them in the same way. But yeah. it's a very ecumenical event in the best sense of that word in that it draws a lot of people together in this common concern for creating music that is singable, that honors God, and that's congregational mm-hmm. in its purpose. Mm-hmm. So I really like the event. And In terms of size, it's very large. One of the biggest you'll find, okay. eight or 10 or 12,000 people or something. I think it's very large. And uh, I'd say worth going to if you've never experienced it. I think it's a yeah. neat event. It's It feels like there's been such an emphasis um, over the last, let's say, decade or so on uh, on preaching, on expository preaching, but not so much on songwriting mm-hmm. and, you know, the next generation of hymn and, and worship writers. Um, yeah, it's something I'd love to see addressed more, more thoroughly uh, educated worship leaders and songwriters. I mean, the Gettys are a great example. There's others out there. How do you think we can address that within the church for the next generation? Mm-hmm. Well, one of one of the lessons is the Charles Wesley lesson, which would also be the Fanny Crosby lesson and so on, uh, Isaac Watts. You need to write a lot of music, understanding that a lot of it will not pass the test of time. Mm. And so you need to write hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of songs for each generation. And it then falls to us to sing those songs, to try them out in church, to and try to be the filter that passes on only the best of them to the next generation. Okay. And so to have people like the Gettys and, and many others writing good music, thinking specifically of congregational music, so not writing the next big chorus, the praise chorus that can do well on radio, but songs that can be sung in the local church to feed, feed God's people and serve them as they worship together week by week, to have people creating those songs, to have churches singing them, and then just seeing what passes through that filter, what we can hand down, and what might, like I think in Christ alone, become one of the the great hymns of the Christian faith that will serve many generations. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a really interesting perspective. I, I think it differs from what I would have said before you just mentioned this filter phenomenon, because um, there's an aspect of, uh, especially I would say, Reformed Christianity, where we want things to be right. 
for good reason, like mm -hmm. to the glory of God, right? Um, but recognizing that there is a process oftentimes of uh, blowing away the chaff, as it were. Not that it's heretical or incorrect, but maybe it's just not to the same level. It's not as beneficial to the church. Right. Right. It's as just, you mentioned with the Puritans writings, there's a lot of it we would we'll probably never read because we don't really need to. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. yeah. And it's not to say it's not true. It's just to say it's maybe not expressed in ways that are wonderful or mm -hmm. great or mm -hmm. um, just that much better than somebody else's stating of it. So with songs, there can be lots of songs that are perfectly good lyrically, maybe perfectly, maybe perfectly good melodically but it's it's the combination of those two and then also songs that i think fit fit a need we have a lot of songs available to us just tens of thousands of songs we can draw upon and so a new song has to say something in a fresh way or say something new or mm -hmm. or, or just be a fresh expression of a of a core truth so yeah uh, yeah i think that that's difficult to do um, which is why so few do pass through the filter but I don't think we have yeah. to feel bad if we're singing songs in church. And after two years, you know, we've sung it maybe 10 or 12 times in church. After a couple of years, we say, yeah, let's not sing that one anymore. That's great. That's good. That's being the filter. Yeah. It makes me think of um, a theology of beauty. So the sense of that um, there are different levels that the creative output that we have, whether it's writers, songwriters, uh, preachers, even as lay people in the work that we do, it's uh, it's not, again, that it's not a moral or ethical issue, but it's rather a question of, is this beautiful? Does this Is this to the glory of God and of his church beyond what something else, the alternates might be? I think the real encouraging thing with what you're saying as well is that um, for, for those within the church who are creative uh, in whatever medium, is that it's okay to not hit perfection every time. So I would ask you about your blog. How much of your blog do you think is going to be legacy material, be worth reading mm -hmm. in a hundred years from now? I can kind of guess the answer to that, but there are also things on there which you would say, oh, I hope that that has an impact 200, 300 years down the line. So I would say probably very little of it will be legacy material, but I also think that's fine uh, because it can still serve people today mm. and and lighten their load or help them on their path. It can still be meaningful today, even if it doesn't last into the future. And so it's fine to create things that are for today's people, mm. understanding that the context will change and the situation will change, and and that's fine. Um, so I don't think we have to hit a home run every time. The pastor who's utterly convinced every Sunday needs to be the greatest sermon he's ever written, well, he'll burn out in yeah. no time. Yeah. But the pastor who can say, I've got 20 hours this week in which I'm writing one sermon or two sermons, and at the end of it, it's going to be incomplete, it's yeah. going to be imperfect, but you know what? God's going to use it, and I'll trust him to use it. That's the guy who's who can just keep going. I think so when you feel like you need to just you need to absolutely nail it every time that's going to be very very discouraging well, one yeah. more thing i wanted to say yeah. about music is god has given us these 150 psalms that are mm. his songbook and absolutely wonderful and 
we should be singing them. I'm Baptist, so I can say we should be singing them more than we currently do. Um, and I admire some of the um, more traditional Reformed uh, congregations or denominations, traditions that sing them very consistently. And I honor that. Um, so you have that that core group of songs, and it's wonderful to sing those. You can still freshen up the tunes, right? As time goes, maybe you move away from the Genevan tunes or something, and you move to to contemporary tunes. And I think that's, that's well within the bounds. Um, but then you have these other songs. And for traditions that are willing to sing other songs, that's really where it comes into, well, what can we express? What, what can be expressed in today's terms? What can mm. be expressed in today's language? And um, how can we continue to inspire people with beautiful content, beautiful melodies, put beauty together with beauty, and uh, give people something to sing? Do you, um, off the top of your head, can you think of any artists today or even of uh, the previous generation that have done some work in the, in the Psalter that is contemporizing the, the music but retaining the, the content of the Psalms themselves? So I think people are starting to now. There's a few groups, a few um, yeah, bands that are that are making some moves. So Sovereign Grace Music has released a couple of albums of Psalms now. And you know, there may be a little bit more on the chorus side uh, in terms of the the music rather than the hymn side, but there's there's a couple there that I think could be sung in in churches quite easily. And uh there's a group called I think it's called My Soul Among Lions, mm-hmm. which is quite good and and um, creating some good melodies as well. So I'm glad to see that. And um, you know, I think there's a lot of Baptists who are thinking, man, we should start singing the Psalms. That's a yeah. good idea. And yeah. these Dutch Reformed guys, like, yeah, we've been doing that all along. <laughs> we never stopped. And and it's great. I think we should pick up on on some of those. And uh, you know, I grew up in the Dutch Reformed churches and the Presbyterian churches, so I, I sang a lot of Psalms, and I'm I'm glad to have access to them in my mind, in my memory. Mm -hmm. I I think I had the opposite experience. I grew up in a very Baptist tradition and then spent the last nine years in England. And we attended a, uh, well, Anglican churches out there. And we, we sang the the Psalms quite a bit and it was, it was very refreshing. I hadn't actually been exposed to that. So coming back now to the States again, I, I have some of the same longing to see that, uh, singing of the Psalter incorporated into a more Baptist uh, context. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I don't think you. There, there's various traditions within Protestantism, and some would say only the Psalms, mm-hmm. which you know I we don't necessarily have to agree with, but I understand how they get there. Um, the one tradition that I think is indefensible is the one that simply never sings the Psalms. Uh, if they were good enough for Jesus, he sang them. <laughs> you think we would as well. So it's it's a strange thing that the church, the Baptist church especially, has so for so long so overlooked those those psalms. They're they're wonderful to mm-hmm. sing. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to ask you uh, just a few more questions. I specifically about social media. I know that you um, think we've got a book. Uh, Taming the Fingers mm-hmm. that you've interacted with a little bit for us uh, for Reformation Heritage Books. You know, this question of what should the believer's relationship be to social media, uh, not just in our current context where we have Elon Musk possibly buying Twitter, there's uh, Facebook developing 
the metaverse, you know, and this kind of this trajectory that we're on towards this new virtual experience. How should we as believers uh, approach this, uh, this brave new world that's encroaching upon us? You know, when, when the internet was still in its infancy, when social media started growing up, I saw a lot of people talking about them like they were a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. Um, if we weren't heavily in there, other people would be proselytizing their faiths or their ideologies and Christians would lose out. It strikes me, I don't think that's proven the case, that I don't think the internet has proven a good medium for, or at least social media has proven a good medium for evangelism, for saving the lost. And I just wonder if that's a bit of a cautionary tale for us. You know, I'm sure there are some who have come to faith through it, but but not very many. I don't think the the world has really been turned upside down in that way mm. uh, for the Lord's work. So I think understanding that we probably as Christians shouldn't just stand back and let this thing develop without us, but on the other hand, realizing that the way God tends to work seemingly is much more through personal relationships than than through online ones. And that distance that grows up between people, that distance that's there necessarily between people in, in social media, um, you know, there, there's a lot that can be done. But I think we need to be careful that we don't start to live out there instead of in local community where people are really eager for relationship. Maybe mm. they don't know they are, but when they get it, I think they're, they're very pleased to have it. So continuing to live locally and not virtually. And as the metaverse comes along, which for now looks like an absolute joke to me, when you see examples of what the metaverse is, it looks utterly absurd. But all the big companies, the big tech companies are going heavily in with it and it will be pushed on us constantly, Mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be very careful we don't start living there instead of living here in the real world. Yeah, I mean, so you don't think that my hippopotamus avatar has much chance of evangelizing my neighbor? I mean, it might, it might, and all your NFTs and yeah. all that. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Um, Tim, I'm I'm really grateful that you came and sat with me. Uh, we, we probably have some technical issues to work out, but it's a brand new space that we've built here. Looks great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we'll see how it sounds. The last question I would kind of want to leave you with is, what are you working on now apart from the blog? I'm sure that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, what's kind of some of the, the upcoming writing and or speaking projects that you might want to share with us? Yeah. Um, so I'm into the finishing touches stages, finishing touch stages of Seasons of Sorrow. Mm-hmm. And so that will be out in September. Looking forward to that. And I'll yeah. be doing a little launch event at uh, the Getty Music Sing Conference. That's where right. it will be officially launched. I believe there will be a song created by one of those groups that we really admire for their um, creating good music that serves the church. One of them should be releasing a song that will accompany the book, be thematically tied to the book at that event. Right. And then, um, yeah, there will be another speaker joining me at a little launch event. So I'm looking forward to that. Other books is I've got a little devotional book that's just in the final editing stages. And then I'm working on a graphic novel on the like on the life of Eric Little. That should be oh, out in a couple cool. of years. Okay. But trying a new medium, trying something new for me. I'm not doing the the drawing, but mm-hmm. I'm doing the writing. Mm-hmm. And excited to see what will come of that and sort of hoping it will build out a series that yeah. could 
appeal to probably young uh, teenagers into young adult age, just people who like graphic novels, what we used to call comic books, and would just like to learn in a, a less formal medium. I'm hoping it will really serve people well. That sounds really exciting. We, we got a few of those, actually. Um, our kids have gotten really into graphic novels. Um, there's, in fact, one of them that started it off for us was To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. I mean, I prefer my kids read the actual book, but they'll get there because they're still right. young. Right. But this is a great kind of introductory way to really, I think, um, break open their, their imagination, mm-hmm. as it were, to think beyond what maybe their limited life experience might give to them yeah. in, in engaging that material. And even if they don't get to the full thing, they'll still have a sense of what it's about. And, yeah. you know, as much yeah. as that, some of the ideas from these books are floated out there in culture, they should be able to get at mm-hmm. least those references. So, yeah. um, you know, my mom taught me that uh, one of the best ways to learn history is to read children's versions of history books written for kids so mm-hmm. read a simonetta car book on yeah. a biographical figure that's probably all you need to know if you're really interested then you can go out and buy the full-length biography and, and learn a lot more but why not gain that broad overview just by reading kids material i think it works well brilliant thanks for sitting with us my yeah, pleasure really a pleasure <laughs>